This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Everything Compliance is now the award-winning Everything Compliance, having won the top talk show in podcasting award by W3. In this episode, we have the quartet of Matt Kelly, Karen Woody, Jonathan Marks, and Jay Rosen. We take up the sole topic of the Delaware Court of Chancery decision creating a duty of oversight for corporate officers. We slice it and dice it from a variety of angles. As always, we end with fan favorites, shout-outs, and rants. Before we get to today's episode, we're going to have a quick word from our sponsor. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a special live edition of Everything Compliance. Today, we are going to unpack the recent Delaware Court of Chancery decision in McDonald's, which created a duty of oversight for corporate officers. We're going to slice and dice it from a variety of ways, and we're going to start with Matt Kelly. Uh, all right. Thank you, Tom, and uh, hello, everybody who's joining us today. So I will give a quick recap of this case, which I think is fascinating for Corporate officers, uh, compliance officers, internal auditors, the corporate lawyers, the whole nine yards. Um, what had happened was, as many listeners might probably know, McDonald's went through a period of turmoil in the late 2010s when its then CEO, Steve Easterbrook, was accused of not just allowing a sexually harassing uh, environment to, to exist at corporate at uh, McDonald's corporate offices. But he himself engaged in numerous affairs with subordinates, lied about that to the board. Eventually, Easterbrook got fired. But the other character, the other partner in crime, along with Easterbrook, was his then head of HR, a man named David Fairhurst, who was also accused of allowing a sexually harassing environment to exist at McDonald's and engaging in sexual harassment behavior himself, even though he was head of HR, and ostensibly in charge of making sure those kind of things did not happen. So big mess ensues. Shareholders then sue McDonald's. Uh, they also sued Fairhurst in Delaware Chancery Court. And Fairhurst started, came back and said, well, no, you can't sue me 
because the duty of oversight under Delaware law only applies to the board of directors, and I am not a director, I'm a corporate officer. The decision last week from the vice chancellor, uh, Travis Laster, uh, was that no, actually, a duty of oversight also extends to corporate officers. And I want to read out exactly what that duty entails because I think it is quite telling for compliance officers. Is uh, This is what Laster wrote. He said, this decision clarifies that corporate officers owe a duty of oversight. And Mr. Bearhurst had an obligation to make a good faith effort to put in place reasonable information systems so that he obtained the necessary information to do his job and to report to the CEO and the board, and he could not consciously ignore red flags that the, co the company was going to suffer harm. That's what Lester said. Um, I think that this is a big deal because it immediately the question, if you're a corporate officer, do we have the necessary information systems in place? Have we made a good faith effort? Is this a system or not? Do we know what that reasonable system is? Um, Laster did say this applies to a corporate office in charge of his or open domain. So the CFO so clear that that new, but um, that he has a he or she has a due oversight that they're getting the right information about financial risks. The corporate officer in charge of legal is in has to have information systems for legal risks. And you could even keep on going with information about sales and marketing, or maybe head of technology, head of research and development. But Laster also specifically said that there are only two C two com executives who would be in charge of, they need systems to find information from anywhere in the enterprise. Well, one is the CEO. That makes sense because the CEO is the boss. They have to know about everything. But the other is the compliance officer because the CCO is in charge of information about compliance risks and workplace misconduct and corporate culture. And those problems could come from anywhere. So a CCO really needs to start thinking about, uh, do we have the necessary information systems in place to find out about any misconduct anywhere in the company? Am I getting all of that? Do I have enough of the right picture to be able to relay this information to senior management and the board so that they can make decisions? And uh, then do I have the, am, am I raising red flags in a timely manner? Because that's the other half of this. You need the information systems and you can't ignore red flags when they come up. Laster did say, going back to Mr. Fairhurst, clearly he had to have been ignoring red flags because he's the head of HR. He's engaging in sexual harassment himself. That's a red flag that he wasn't bringing up. Um, so this is a, I know I kind of, high-speed tour through all of this, but it really puts the spotlight for corporate officers generally, but compliance officers in particular. Do you have the right information systems in place to collect all of the information you need? Do you have the right procedures to be able to take all of that to senior management? And if senior management isn't giving that to you, what sort of duties do you have either to try and address that problem, to go to the board directly with concerns, potentially even go to regulators. If you don't do this, if you don't have sufficient information, could you personally face liability in shareholder lawsuits? Maybe. 
Um, there's a lot going on here, Tom, and I'll, I'll stop and take a pause right there, but I think it's a very important case. Jay, you got a question for Matt? You're on mute, Jay. Sorry, guys. I always call this the uh, Passover question. Why on this night is it different than any other night? So can you kind of peel back the thinking here? And is it the set of facts that they're so egregious or why now? And what does it mean moving forward? Well, like the set of facts certainly don't help. Um, you know, the, like Mr. Fairhurst is accused of some pretty unsavory behavior for a head of HR. Uh, the CEO at the time, Steve Easterbrook, equally unflattering for him that he was violating the code of conduct, lied about that to the board, then left. And then the board sued him when they found out he had lied. And like there's messy stuff all over the place. But in truth, I don't think this is a big quantum leap forward in Delaware corporate law. Like they'd kind of sort of been moving in this direction anyways. Um, and even Judge Laster himself said, this is not groundbreaking. This is just the first time a judge has actually put those words together that, yes, corporate officers have a duty of oversight. But in the same way that the board has a duty to oversee the company for shareholders, corporate officers have a duty to oversee the corporation for the board, who is their boss. Um, and they would even have more of a duty because corporate officers are more closely tied to the corporation and its daily activities than the board is. And Laster lays all of that out. Um, the other big question that Laster doesn't really address is what happens when you are the person who is chiefly in charge of ethics and compliance at your company, but you don't actually have the title of chief compliance officer? Like Laster even says, well, clearly chief compliance officers have a duty of oversight. I mean, he point blank says it pretty much verbatim. But if you're a senior counsel for ethics and compliance, are you a corporate officer, therefore, or not? Because you might be the highest ranking person in the company in charge of compliance. You might be responsible for putting information systems in place to gather all that up. But if you're a senior counsel reporting into the chief legal officer, well, by definition, he or she would be the corporate officer, not you, because you're reporting to a co corporate officer, right? Like, I, I would say that logically makes sense. Laster doesn't really talk about that. He only talks about chief compliance officers as if they're the only incarnation of a compliance professional at a corporation. That's not actually how it works at a lot of corporations. Um, and what happens if you have the general counsel and chief compliance officer? They're the same person. Not an unusual arrangement. Maybe that's not a big deal because the GC pretty much always is a corporate officer. Um, but if you're deputy general counsel and chief compliance officer, are you a corporate officer or do you report into the GC who clearly is a corporate officer? We have a lot of arrangements that exist in the real world that aren't reflected in Laster's very logically sound opinion, but I don't know what we're supposed to do with it when we start applying it to actual companies. Well, Karen, uh, why don't we turn to you? Because I ask you to take a look at this really from uh, the legal uh, perspective, the uh, legal reasoning and rationale perspective. What did you see in this case that either intrigued you, you thought was interesting, or you know, perhaps the court went too far? 
Yeah, the answer to all those things is yes. And so I'm going to start doing a, a little background. I think, you know, Matt covered the waterfront of how we got here a little bit, but I think it's worth acknowledging that Laster, I think, recognizes that this is a pretty groundbreaking decision. And to Jade's question, like, why now? It's a, it's a good question. But I think Laster tries to make clear that we would have been heading in this direction for a while. So if you start with, well, the case that predates Caremark is Alice Chalmers is where we first get this idea that the board can be held liable, personally liable through a derivative lawsuit um, for ignoring red flags. So we, we get that idea, you know, decades ago or, you know, a while ago. Then Caremark, enter Caremark, where we see this, oh, now you actually have to have a compliance program, some system of monitoring, some way that there's information that gets up to the board. Um, and that gets clarified a bit in Stone v. Ritter, which comes after Caremark. And that's where we really see this idea of there are two prongs of Caremark under which plaintiffs can sue the board. Either a information problem, a system problem, you didn't have a system to catch anything, or a red flag. You had a system, but you just ignored the outputs of the system and what it was saying. So that all has been set up and that's been, you know, at least 20 years on since uh, Stone v. Ritter. But that was always only um, talking about the, the the defendants in those cases are always the board of directors, and it never had been applied to officers until McDonald's, which seems kind of silly and obvious, but that's kind of some of what last are saying. is like, how did this not get applied to officers before? But it hasn't. Um, so he relies on, I think the way he walks through the legal sort of foundation for this is really important and highlights what I think is a major potential slippery slope problem with this uh, with this opinion. So first he says, I'll tell you all about Caremark and how we got to Caremark. And surely the spirit of Caremark suggests that we should apply this also to officers. So that's the first thing. He then replies, you know, he said, well, this is different though. Are officers the same as board members? And he relies on this case, Gantler versus Stephen, which is a 2009 Delaware Supreme Court case. That says, hey, by the way, officers owe the same fiduciary duties as directors. So given that, we should treat them all the same. And he relies on the literature from bankruptcies or other areas of corporate law to say fiduciary duties should be uh, the same across the board. So too, this duty of oversight, duty of loyalty, things like that. Um, he then says, almost as overkill, he's like, here's another way we can get to this outcome. He says... Uh, offices are agents of the board. So he uses agency theory to say, hey, you know, when you are, um, uh, you know, in, in the employ of someone else, you sort of uh, take on this, the mantle of that, um, working for that uh, other principal. In that sense, fiduciary duties run to you as agent. And then finally, he sort of posits that there's a general policy reason by pointing out the counterfactual, like what happens if they don't have oversight duties? That's a ridiculous outcome, which is the board's held liable, but there's no accountability for officers who are supposed to be part of this, you know, corporate structure. So that's how we get to this, you know, like I say, kind of almost overkill of like, there's a lot of ways we can come out at this decision anyway. Um, you know, I, does this matter? I think it's huge. Some people say it doesn't totally matter because you still have to clear the hurdle of Caremark, of getting over Caremark, which the judge in Caremark said this is the hardest theory upon which plaintiffs can prevail in corporate law. You have to say that directors operated in bad faith. 
And now we also have to say officers operated in bad faith. So sure, that's a high bar. But the doors to the courthouse might not be open, but they definitely got unlocked with this because it wasn't even feasible legally before this case. So two major things I'm going to say, and then I'll stop rambling. Two major issues. I think one, agency theory for this, I think I think you can make a valid argument that there's creep beyond the officers here. Sort of to answer your question, Matt, about who's the compliance officer. I think if you use agency theory, it might not matter because you are now an agent to the corporate compliance officer. Does that then imbue you with some sort of duty um, by virtue of just sort of going up the chain? So that I think is a little dicey. Like, if, you know, if can we drill down basically through agency theory? And then the other thing I'll just say very briefly, we haven't talked about much, but is the second sort of alternative theory that the plaintiffs brought for why Fairhurst had breached his duties and therefore can be sued under Caremark is this idea that because he sexually harassed um, and was a sexual harasser, um, that was a breach of his duty of loyalty. And I am not a fan of this guy. I'm not a fan of Eastwood. This is all a disastrous. I mean, no one should be excited about these facts. That said, there is a line here that says when Fairhurst engaged in sexual harassment, he was not acting subjectively to further the best interests of the company. He therefore was acting in bad faith. And that is a major leap, I think. I mean, this now suggests any sexual harassment or not, I mean, any other sort of activity where they could argue you're not actually putting the best interests of the company forward, that is bad faith. That to me was a, a, that again, he doesn't spend a lot of time on that second thing. It's only a couple of pages versus the 50 sum he goes into for how we get there via camera. But that one I thought was also a pretty wide swing about anyone now who maybe has some, you know, allegation of sexual harassment puts you on the bubble for being sued in a derivative suit, uh, it, to me, seems like a like a big move, big shift. So that, those are my two, I think, sort of uh, slippery slope problems, maybe, with this opinion. So, Matt, you got a comment or question for Karen? Because I've got a follow-up. Well, I, I have two points that I think compliance officers might want to consider here. Number one, as much as we all love uh, getting lost in the weeds of corporate Delaware law, we can't ignore some of the other law pressures that face compliance officers, such as the Justice Department requiring compliance officers and CEOs to certify the strength of your compliance program as part of corporate settlements now. Um, it seems to me that if you, the compliance person, are co-signing something with the CEO by definition, that must make you a corporate officer. Uh, again, this is like common sense more than black letter law. Nobody's actually declared it, but you're co-equal with the CEO, but you don't count as a corporate officer overseeing your program. So it has to be that way, I would think. But then does that expose you not just to, will the Justice Department come after us if we subsequently have a compliance program failure? Could I be sued by shareholders? because I signed something for the Justice Department that subsequently turned out to be erroneous. Um, the second incident that comes to my mind, this is breaking news for compliance listeners, um, everything compliance listeners, is just this morning, Friday, February 3rd, that we're recording this, the Securities and Exchange Commission 
settled the case against Activision Blizzard, fining them $35 million for poor disclosure controls and procedures about workplace harassment complaints. Because let's remember that Activision had this terrible problem with workplace harassment, has been sued by California, they've already settled with the EEOC, um, and the complaint that the SEC filed was that you did not have proper systems in place to gather information about workplace misconduct claims and relay that information to Activision's disclosure committee. Well, huh, who would typically be in charge of putting together an information system to track worker complaints? That sounds to me like it is the compliance officer. And now the SEC has just said, and Activision has neither confirmed nor denied, they just settled, yeah, you know, okay, whatever, we had that flaw. Does this expose a compliance officer to shareholder litigation if you have something like that? I don't know, but certainly if I were a compliance officer, I would be thinking about these kind of risks all the time, and I would probably be wondering, when do I go to the board and say, I want DNO insurance too, because this is a risk I did not sign up for, but now it's out there. I don't know. So I want to tackle the question of why now? Uh, Jay, and wrap it into uh, some of Karen's remarks. Uh, the well-known legal truism that bad facts make bad law, I think, is at play here. And while I don't think this was a bad law outcome, I think the bad facts were what gave the court pause to move forward from Caremark and Caremark and a duty of oversight for board members to the conduct of uh, the two executive officers, Steve Easterbrook, although he was dismissed from this litigation, but David Fairhurst. Uh, Fairhurst conduct uh, really was beyond the corporate pale in many ways, and that if he had not engaged personally in sexual harassment and in hiding uh, these allegations going forward, I'm not sure the court would have would have gone this far. Uh, even if it had simply been Easterbrook uh, who had a consensual affair, I'm not sure it would have gone. It didn't go that this far, but because he was actively engaged in sexual harassment the cover-up, uh, and then apparently the wolf not guarding the in-house, but being on the committee for corporate protection when they tried to do something. Um, I think all of those factors are what led uh, to this uh, decision. Karen, I guess the, the question I wanted to, to pose to you is, Matt touched on this a little bit, but do you see this at least as a logical extension of Caremark, or perhaps the next step in Caremark, and do you see a trend towards not only greater corporate responsibility, but perhaps greater corporate transparency? Uh, corporate transparency, that's a different question, I think, but yes, I think this is a natural extension of Caremark, and I remember when I first read Caremark, I mean, I think maybe a lot of people would be in this camp, they didn't realize it didn't extend to officers. You have DNO insurance as a board is like there will be officers in the room. There's sort of that idea that, oh, wait, some of these people are held apart because they're uh, simply a board member as opposed to also an officer um, or only an officer. Uh, and so I, I, it seems, I think his final point on really just the policy, in addition to even the legal points, I think he's saying this, it would be such an aberration to not extend this to officers. That That's such an upside down outcome. Um, in terms of corporate transparency, sure. I mean, there's been a lot of really great articles written about how this 
shift in Caremark and sort of the success that plaintiffs have had recently and and getting into the courtroom uh, over motions to dismiss um, has been from Section 220, the ability for them to look at books and records of the company. And that like allows plaintiffs to get the documentation because that's a lot of it's sort of the, the playing field is somewhat skewed because they, they can't see into what's going on in the company unless there usually is an attendant or con- like sort of concurrent federal investigation, which is how we saw all of these camera cases. There was some regulatory agency that did some discovery, did some investigation. And from that, plaintiffs were able to piggyback on um, whatever the, the investigation was on the federal side uh, through whatever regulatory agency. So will this create more transparency? Yeah. I, I mean, I, my guess is as good as yours. I, I, I do think it will allow, um, I think it'll make corporate compliance officers very nervous. I think it'll have the uh, agencies swirling. And now we have the SEC here stepping in the shoes in some ways of the EEOC. Yeah, this is obviously, you know, there's going to be people investigating this anyway, and plaintiffs can, to, can piggyback on that. So, Jonathan Marks. Uh, I ask you to consider this opinion from the internal audit perspective. Uh, does this that new duty of oversight uh, change the way uh, an internal auditor would look at internal controls as information systems? Do you see greater responsibility now or greater opportunity for internal audit to bring information uh, directly to the board? How would you say, uh, and, and the reason I ask you, uh, to, to look at this is, as Matt noted, the decision said most heads, uh, corporate officers have a, a siloed remit. So legal, chief legal officer, general counsel for legal, head of internal audit for audit, chief financial officer for financial, as opposed to a CEO or a CCO. How do you think a, a siloed corporate officer might consider this and, and relying on what your the work you've done as an internal auditor over the years? I think it's an interesting question. I'm not so sure right now I have great answers. I could tell you sort of what I've been thinking about um, as this unfolded and I read the same thing that you all did. Um, I don't disagree with anything that, you know, the panelists have said. I, I agree with Matt. I agree with Karen. I think what's kind of interesting here is that sort of the the 800 pound or the sort of the thing that's sort of the blinding glimpse of the obvious is that did McDonald's have a toxic culture? Um, and with audit actually going out and touching and, 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 and talking to folks around the organization, you know, do they have a duty and obligation now, um, that's a little bit more heightened when they're doing the testing, you know, not only test controls, but, you know, Tom, you, you bring up the information systems piece, you know, is information getting back to the right folks so that they can make informed decisions. That's a, that's certainly an interesting question. Um, you know. There are some internal audit departments that don't even touch that. Uh, there are some that actually do look at that governance process and the governance structure and understand what the layers of governance are and are able to audit that as part of you know its own unique audit. Um, but I do think that what this does is that it puts the onus on internal audit to really take a good hard look at sort of the cultural environment that they're operating in. And you know when they're having their executive sessions, with the board members, I think it's incumbent upon them to share with them where they believe that there's levels of toxicity, whether that's because people are overriding internal controls or not following the rules. There's 
unwieldy behavior and things like that, which I think, you know, human resources are certainly fair game, you know, and it's generally part of an internal audit process at some point. But, you know, th these decisions are just, I, I mean, I look at these and I go back to sort of, I try to break them down into the fundamental characteristics. And I do believe that a lot of people just don't even understand what governance is. I don't think that, you know, I, I Karen, you, you teach this stuff and we all espouse to all this, but you know, if you ask somebody, you know, what's a good governance structure, what, a, what does the governance structure really look like or what it should look like, you know, at the organizational level, you know, at the um, competitive or market or environmental level, and even at the institutional level, if you ask them to define that and what that means and the risks throughout, most people can't even articulate what those things are. They don't know that they're nested within one another and how they impact the organization from an overall perspective you know, and how the duty of care and the duty of loyalty and how that all comes into play, making informed decisions and the business judgment rule. Most internal auditors don't understand that. So I think, you know, Tom, your your question's a good one. You know, having someone that's isolated and not part of all of this, you know, I, I think that doesn't fly anymore. I think that one of the things that we learned is that, you know, you have a, a duty and an obligation now, at least to go out and find out what's going on within the, within the organization. And if in fact you have information that is detrimental or could be used to make some type of decision or could you know could swing the company into a different direction i think you have an obligation to report that so you know i go back i asked you know i have a question for jay because i know jay talks about this stuff all the time but you know if in fact there isn't that information system or that information flow that that or that feedback loop that should be going back up to the board you know, or you do go to somebody within the organization and say, hey, I think that there's some level of toxicity here and they don't do anything with it. Do you now have an obligation to pick up the ethics line and 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 file an ethics complaint and have some investigation that's launched into all this? I, I wonder if that if something like that actually existed at McDonald's, whether, you know, whether the, the outcomes would have been different or, you know, is I always now. I always look at governance and the way organizations operate in a in a unique fashion, and maybe it's just me, but I, I look at it, I say, hey, look, is this organization, when I look at the board, is it a team or is it a family? And you might say to yourself, well, shouldn't it really be both? Well, I think there are elements of both, but if they're a family and they're going to protect one another and they're not going to really do the make the hard decisions or the right choices, that's a problem. If they're a team and they realize that they have to make informed decisions and they understand their duties and responsibilities, that's a little bit different too. Translate that now into senior leadership, same thing. You know, um, if they're a family and they're not gonna they're not gonna take the responsibility to report this bad behavior, you're gonna create that level of toxicity. You're you're gonna create those problems that are gonna be that are gonna manifest themselves either immediately or over time within an organization, you're going to create that bad actor, the bad bunch of bad crop. So I don't think this is an easy question by any stretch of the imagination. I kind of look at, I looked at the judge's opinion and kind of rolled my eyes in the back of my head like a slot machine a little bit. But I, I agree with you that it's probably something that has been kind of brewing over time. Um, but, you know, we all say that compliance isn't the compliance officer's responsibility, right? that it's the organization's responsibility to be, you know, to, to work, you know, to be, um, you know, part of that process, much like internal controls are not internal audits issue. 
you know, their, their, their management, management owns that. And so I kind of, I don't know, I don't really know where this is all going. I just know that I looked at this and I said, Hey, I think from an internal audit perspective, we all talk about auditing culture. That's great. But I think that we just need to be a little bit more sensitive today as we go forward and make sure in our conversations that we have our executive sessions with the board and board members, if you're listening, you should be asking your internal auditors these questions too. It's not a one-way ticket here. You know, it, it's got to go both ways. You have to understand, you should be asking them, what are they seeing out there? Are there problems within the organization from a culture perspective that are preventing us from getting that information to make those informed decisions? So I, I don't know. I mean, I just, again, I go back to, you know, the sort of the fundamentals. I go back to, you know, kind of what's going on today and what people are thinking. And I, I just, I don't know what the right answers are, but um, I do know if it was me and I was the chief audit executive of an organization, I'm going to modify and tweak my approach based on, you know, what I read, you know, read in McDonald's opinion. And also considering what we've been seeing with, you know, other actions or inactions or, or, or lawsuits that have happened, you know, in particular over the last five years. So before we move to Jay Rosen, we've had a question come in from our uh, live audience. And James McRitchie asks, do you expect that this decision to generate shareholder proposals? And Matt, I'm going to clip clamp onto that, uh, given the Activision uh, settlement announcement today. Would uh, you see calls for uh, greater information or greater transparency? Uh, so the short answer is yes. Will this lead to more shareholder proposals? The flip answer would be, well, when does something not lead to more shareholder proposals? Because this is what shareholders do. Um, but I do think actually a better way to phrase it would be, will this lead to more shareholder proposals that companies will start to realize that we can't just kind of blow this off like we would, would like to? Um, I have seen shareholder proposals before about we want a report from the company about this aspect of corporate culture or that aspect. And, you know, a lot of times companies will try and keep that at arm's length. They'll recommend no, it doesn't go anywhere. Um, this seems to me more like, well, geez, if we say no, we're not going to do that. And then we later find out that we've got this wrong. We now have yet another part of our posterior ready and available for shareholder lawsuits. And I think, I think that, um, yes, this is going to lead to more shareholder lawsuits, but there will then be more voices in the company saying, shouldn't we take care of this just to make sure that our rear ends are covered? Tom, I forget what the part was that you clamped on there. If I didn't answer your clamped on second question. Well, uh, Karen, you do a little more work in the corporate governance area. What would your, your uh, thought be on that question? Uh, Hi, Jim, by the way, he's the, he would be the expert on this really in terms of shareholder proposal. Um, uh, I, I can imagine there'd be a number of shareholder proposals, especially given that requirement for robust um, systems. And so if there's some loophole or some gap, I should say, in corporate systems or in the information flow, I can see this giving some teeth to a shareholder proposal that wants more people in the boardroom, an employee representative or someone else who uh, expands the purview of the board if someone thinks the information flow isn't um, accurate or isn't uh, sufficient. So I'm trying to think through what other proposals um, sort of ex ante before things blow up um, that should be put 
in place in order to prevent it. And so I could see things like that, like more uh, and maybe more transparency about the systems, about how the information gets up to the board and they are accurately monitoring it. So I sure I could I can imagine it. But honestly, I would I would ask you that question, too, Jim. <laughs> yeah, Tom, if I could chime in one more point, I think um, I'll, I'll link this back to the Activision case that just came out today. But what the SEC had picked up on with Activision was that Activision discloses in its 10K as a material risk, we might not be able to retain or attract the best and the brightest talent. And then the SEC said, well, you should have known that you had this harassing culture and that one gender on the planet was thinking this is a terrible place to work and all of that stuff. But like every company on the world, in the world now, discloses as a risk factor, we might not be able to attract and maintain sufficient talent. Well, what flows from that is, you know, okay, company, could you then please tell us how you're doing at that? How is your culture? Because that's very relevant to how you can attract and retain. Like there is a big window that is open here for issues about corporate culture. And then getting back to the Delaware decision, if I were a compliance officer, the one question I would keep in the front of mind is under what circumstances would our company maybe be accused of having a toxic culture? Think about that. What sort of toxicity? How would it come? Uh, how would we miss that? What system should we have in place to catch it? Everything flows from that key question. How might somebody accuse us of having a toxic culture? And Tom, you and I have discussed this before. I think a great example of that would be Wells Fargo, which clearly had a toxic culture. It does not have to be about sexual harassment, even though McDonald's and Activision were. Like, Sexual harassment is one of the few things that Wells Fargo did not stumble into that particular type of misconduct. But it still had a terrible culture, still violated all sorts of norms in just about every single way. So that's the the framing mechanism for compliance executives is toxic culture. Where would the allegations about that come from? And then do I have the systems in place to catch it? Jonathan, what would be your thoughts on the, the corporate governance model that you talk about uh, quite often? On the model? I think... I would I would go back and look. I mean, there are different models around the globe. Not one is perfect. You know, there's not a best practice for best practice from one is not a best practice from another. But you know, there's there's basically a shareholder primacy model, which are the interests of the shareholders are prioritized. And then there's a then there's the stakeholder primacy model. There's different types of models that are out there. You know, including dual board structures, which you know are, you know exist in some and don't exist in others. You know, or unitary board structures. But I would. I would definitely go back and take a look and break down my overall governance model, take a look at the nesting of, you know, how, how it all comes together, who has what roles, you know, take a look at the committee structures, you know, take a look at, we talked about, you know, transparency and disclosure, you know, are we, you know, I would break down all seven components, all key seven components, you know, from a communication and information sharing and feedback perspective, you know, from a legal and regulatory perspective, I would go through each and every one of them. I think it's a good time to do, I'm not saying a full-blown governance audit, but I think a governance audit's probably, you know, based on what I've seen over the last five years, probably not a bad idea um, for a bunch of different reasons. And even, you know, you guys are talking about shareholder proposals. I can't tell you how many times I've been called in over the years because there's a shareholder proposal that was launched in and the organization has decided, hey, you know what, we're not going to do anything in our annual meeting. However, we are going to 
institute a special project and looked into this and make sure that we understand exactly why they're saying what they're saying. You know, maybe they know something that we don't know. So, you know, I think it's perfect time to do that. I, you know, but, you know, I would definitely, I would definitely revisit my governance structure. I would, if you've never done a governance audit, you know, I think it's a great time to do one. Um, and, you know, I just, like I said, I think sometimes organizations exist in that if you take a look at the tenure of, board of boards of directors over time, you know, there's passengers, participants, and prisoners. And depending on the way that everything is structured and who's on your board and, you know, what your senior leadership looks like and what market you you operate in, I mean, things change all the time. You, you have to understand if that structure and that model is working for you today. So sort of, you know, now, you know, now for tomorrow, if you will, and where we're going in the future, because if you don't, I think some of these things are going to fall through the track, fall through the cracks. And then, you know, sort of concomitant with all of that. And that is what we're, I talked about was this toxic culture, which is, I think, is the foundation and the bedrock in which the governance system sits on top of. If that's busted, you know, it's almost impossible to have, you know, a governance structure that that really is going to work effectively within the company. So I think there's a lot of different pieces here. I think it's time to kind of go back and fundamentally revisit those things that we all talked about before um, that make up the organization, that make up the structure. Do they work? Don't they work? Why don't they work? You know, are there things, are there gaps and areas that we should improve on? Um, you know, but um, I do think it's interesting times. Um, you know, the regulators have been very, very vocal. And now the, you know, the courts have been very, very vocal on some of these things. And I think if you do nothing, I think you're just exposing yourself to problems later. That's all. Jay Rosen, uh, Director of Business Development from Affiliated Monitors. Jay, when I read this opinion, uh, it struck me that Affiliated Monitors is in the information systems business. And I had never thought of independent integrity monitoring or proactive monitoring in that way. I wondered what your thoughts were in reading this opinion and how can uh, both boards of directors and now uh, corporate officers really uh, ensure that the proper information systems are in place? It's a great question, Tom. And over the past year, we've seen the role of the chief compliance officer has shifted in some real dramatic ways. These shifts have come from the disparate groups and for a variety of reasons. Yet when you put them all together, one can see a clear line expanding and elevating the role of the CCO in the corporate world. From the announcement of the requirement of CCO certification last year, up to the recent announcement of the Delaware Court of Chancery, the CCO has made a wide remit in responsibility as any corporate officer. The only one greater would be the chief compliance officer. This shift began with the speech by Kenneth Polite, Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division on May 17th of last year. He was announcing new requirements for the CCO certification of the compliance program for companies going through a deferred prosecution agreement. This CCO certification required the Glencore CCO to certify the Glencore compliance program. He needed to certify, is this reasonably designed to detect and prevent violations of the FCPA and other anti-corruption laws at the conclusion of the DPA? Who is the only other person required to make a similar certification at the conclusion of a DPA? That's right, the CEO of the company. So this means that the CCO and the CEO are certifying the entire compliance program that it meets the standards of not simply best practices, 
but also all the enhanced requirements of an attachment C to any deferred prosecution agreement. While many have focused on the question of whether this would bring criminal liability to a long-gone or even current CCO, the question now seems to miss the mark. Recall what Polite said when announcing the new requirements. He said, it is the type of resource that compliance officers, including myself, have wanted for some time because it makes it clear that you should and must have appropriate structured stature in corporate decision-making. It is intended for to empower our compliance professionals to have the requisite data, access, and voice within the organization to ensure you and us that your company has an ethical compliance-focused environment. The 2022 Monaco memo and the 2023 announced changes in the DOJ's Corporate Enforcement Policy, CEP, are bookends of a series of changes which began as far back as in October of 2021 when the Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco first announced revisions which would eventually be incorporated into the Monaco memo in the CEP. In many ways, the Monaco memo laid out the sticks while the CEP provided the carrots for current FCPA and other white-collar enforcements. The Monaco memo directed prosecutors to evaluate a corporation's compliance program as a factor in determining the appropriate terms of corporate resolution, as prosecutors should now assess the adequacy and effectiveness of their corporation's compliance program at two points in its timeline, first, at the time of the offense, and second, at the time of the charging decision. Polite further defined the effectiveness of a compliance program at the time of the offense as saying, quote, at the time of misconduct and disclosure, the company has an effective compliance program and system of internal accounting controls that allow the identification of the misconduct and led to the company's self-disclosure. This is the first time that the DOJ has said that the detection of wrongdoing, which defines the effectiveness of the compliance program. This means the company's investment and compliance program, CCO and corporate compliance team are all elega- elevated in importance. This prong does not simply get you a discount, but it can put you on the road to the default position of the DOJ for an FCPA violation or declination. Moreover, when you couple the ABV FCPA resolution to the Monaco memo, you see the carrots which appeared in the new CEP. ABB was the first three-time recidivist, yet was able to get an excellent resolution with the government and a fine of only $315 million, despite clear aggravating factors including corruption up to the corporate office. These trends were brought together by the Delaware Court of Chancery's decision in the McDonald's case, and its former executive vice president and chief global people officer, David Fairhurst, which you've spoken about earlier, were the first time a a Delaware court formally recognized the oversight duties of officers of Delaware corporations. So what does it mean? This is the part where it gets interesting. As the CCO certification and the Delaware courts reading, it is the CCO who was 1B to the CEO's 1A. And the first step every company must take is to put the CCO in a position to report up directly to the board. It also means that the days of the CCO reporting to a chief legal officer or general counsel are numbered. The Delaware court drove this point home by specifically naming a CLOGC as a person who is responsible for legal oversight over making good faith efforts to establish reasonable information systems, 
In other words, not responsible for the company-wide remit as a CCO. The next area would come from the hallmarks of an effective compliance program as laid out in the FCPA resource guide. In that document, it states that in appraising the compliance program, TOJ and SEC also consider whether the company has assigned responsibility to the oversight and the implementation of the company's compliance program to one or more specific senior executives. Those executives must have appropriate authority within the organization and adequate autonomy for management and sufficient resources to ensure the company's program is implemented effectively. And that, here's something that Tom hinted at earlier. Another tool that may prove equally effective is the use of preemptive or proactive monitoring assessments as a key to the CCO meeting these new obligations. As we quoted the Glencore DPA a few minutes ago, a compliance program should be reasonably designed to detect and prevent violations of the FCPA and other anti-corruption laws. To augment the preventative compliance program with a proactive ethics and compliance assessment, CCOs may now have a complementary robust suite of options where they can improve the outcomes with government regulators and utilizing the proactive assessment. Under Chapter 9, Section 47 of the U.S. Attorney's Manual, the DEJ, DEOJ is mandated to evaluate the quality and experience of the personnel involved in compliance such that they can understand and identify the transaction and activities that pose a risk. Finally, DOJ will also evaluate other factors such as the CCO's compensation to see if it's commensurate with the position of being second in command to the CEO. The Delaware court decision creating the duty of oversight was not designed to increase the scope, reach, and importance of a CCO, but the more this group looks at the case, we believe that it will be the most last, lasting legacy. So when we look back over the last 12 months, we'll see that the CCO role has more stature and responsibility than it's ever had before. All right. Well, cognizant of Mr. Kelly's uh, hard stop at the top of the hour, we are going to move to fan favorites of shout outs and rants with the same order, but I'm going to bat this behind Mr. Rosen. So Matt, do you have a shout out and or rad for us? I, I do. Uh, I have a shout out to the, of all people, the Texas state legislature. So Tom, if you want to take some nitrates to uh, avoid a coronary, now might be a good time, but I actually am going to praise them for something that they had done. Uh, I think we might have all seen a lot of news lately about insurance companies denying needed health care uh, to consumers and many times uh, reaching those denial decisions through very flawed and inappropriate decision making processes. Um, and then it came to my attention that in Texas now they have a new program for doctors where you can be gold carded as in if you have a history of having your healthcare treatment recommendations approved by insurers, and most of them approved. I Tom, you might know this, but I think the rule is that if you have 90% of your pre-approval requests granted by insurers, you then do not need to get pre-approval authorizations anymore because you are a trusted medical professional who uses good judgment. This is a good idea. I am rather surprised that the Texas legislature came up with it, but I will give a shout out to good ideas wherever they are found. So I hope that more states would be able to do that. And shame on those big health insurance weenies 
who uh, so often do engage in a game of wearing consumers down with these tedious authorization processes that a lot of times insurers just don't really even follow themselves. And we wind up with uh, healthcare that is denied for no good reason. Texas is trying to do something about it. Seems like a good idea. Good for them. Karen Woody, do you have a shout out and or rant for us? I have a shout out. It's actually not related to what I've been watching or reading, which usually is what my shout outs are about. Mine is just a very basic a shout out to Amtrak that doesn't get enough love. But I had to go up to a meeting in D.C. I'm only two hours south of D.C. and I usually drive and I'm from D.C. So I'm I usually I'm happy to have my car drive around and see my old stomping grounds. But for whatever reason, I needed the extra hours to work on the train. And I consistently forget how great it is that we can travel by train. And I, uh, it's, maybe this is a admonition that we should be doing more of this. We could put our electric cars maybe on the shelf and all get on a train because it was the easiest way to get somewhere. It was uh, enjoyable. It wasn't the hassle of TSA. So it was a total shout out to and you know and maybe. Uh, an exhortation to those of us to keep using Amtrak. We got to somehow keep them in business. Jonathan Marks, you have a shout out and or rant for us today. Well, I will second Karen Woody's shout out to Amtrak. I mean, I, I use the train all the time. I think it's great. I think more people should probably use it. But my, my, my rant is against the Pentagon and this stupid balloon that's flying around. Um, how is it that we have this thing flying around? I mean, any other thing that would be flying around would be blown out of the sky. So either it says happy birthday, Melissa, underneath it, and it's just some big party balloon that got away from somewhere, or it really is some spy balloon. But having it fly around, I, I don't get it. Jay Rosen. Um, depending geographically where people live, you may, dis you may uh, discern what I'm going to talk about as a rant or a shout out. But 15 years ago today, uh, Football player for the New York Giants, David Tyree, caught a pass off his helmet and deflated the dreams of New England Patriot fans who were looking for a perfect season. They were 16-0 in the regular season and were heavy favorites to beat the Patriots. Now, we all know I'm a Boston homer, but there is a personal connection here that 15 years ago, my wife Rebecca was in the hospital on bed rest carrying our twins, Millie and Michaela. I got a phone call that morning and she said, hey, why don't you come here? We'll have some babies and then watch the Super Bowl. So I'm shouting out to my beautiful daughters, Millie and Michaela, on their 15th birthday and uh, learn a lot from you girls. Love you very much and happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. So I'm going to give a shout out to Hindenburg Research. Hindenburg Research is a research company that uh, identifies uh, corporate waste, abuse, and fraud, and they are a short seller. Uh, on January 24th, they put out a res uh, research paper about companies owned by Gautman Adani, the richest man in India. And since January 24th, some 10 business days, these companies have lost $110.7 billion in value. So, Hindenburg Research, big shout out. Short sellers do some good things sometimes, big shout out. And if you think you're having a bad week, think about $110 billion, $10 billion a day in losses. 
Well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been a great episode. I'm glad we had some in the studio audience, and I can't wait to see what we can come up with next time. Matt, I think you're good for the top of the hour. Thank you very much, guys. Farewell. Thanks, all. Take care, everyone. Let me go chase the balloon. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. Have you ever thought about starting a podcast? Have you ever wondered if you could join the Compliance Podcast Network? We had some great new additions in 2022. And if you'd like to consider that or just talk to me about what it might take for you to start a podcast, I'd love to talk to you. We're always looking for new podcasts for the Compliance Podcast Network, the only network for podcasters in the compliance space. I hope you'll join us again in a couple of weeks when we have the full Everything Compliance gang back again. I'd also like to shout out to my colleague Gwen Hassan. Gwen started the Hidden Traffic podcast about human trafficking, modern slavery, and issues surrounding those broglios that many companies find themselves in. Gwen not only won several awards in her first year as a podcaster, but she actually had the top two podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network for 2023. So congratulations, Gwen, keep up the great work. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.